So we're winding down in this study in the book of Romans, where we have been taking a different approach to try to understand the purpose of Romans. And tonight we are coming back to a section where we're taking a look at how Paul uses different pronouns in chapters five through eight. Last week, we talked about uh, the all section, uh, that generic section that seemed to imply every reader, but there are some other elements there. He will use you and we and I in this section, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at the you and we sections, and then next week, which is that passage in Romans 7, where Paul talks about how he himself uh, struggles in the course of his ongoing journey, and uh, so we'll, we'll reserve that for next week. But tonight, what I want us to do is built upon that idea of all last week, where there was a comparison between Adam and Christ, and then um, the implications that that would have upon the strong and weak that he is writing to in the Roman house churches. Um, we're going to take a look at the idea of where this is going. Uh, when he talks in this section, it kind of ends with this picture of this cosmic liberation, not only of people, but all of creation itself. And one of the words that he uses in this section is glorification as well. But the way I want to approach it is I, I want to leave the you section to the second discussion. I want to talk about we. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is if you look here, uh, we looked at uh, chapter 5, 12 through 21 and 8, 1 through 8 last week. The we section you'll see is uh, pretty extensive. Uh, and well, here's what I want to do. I want you to just uh, bear with me for a second. I'm gonna read just a few sections or verses out of each chapter so you see where I'm picking up this theme. So in chapter five, verses one through 11, Paul says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. You get the rhythm there. And if you read that entire section, you'll see that he keeps using this personal pronoun of we all the way down through verse 11. So if you jump down even to verse nine, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. So we, 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 we. Then over in chapter six, it's the same uh, thing in verse one. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? So same thing. If you were to take a pencil and read all the way through verse 10, you'll circle we all the way through there. Chapter 7, it, uh, it, in verse 4, he begins, so my brothers, you, you have died to the law. That's the other thing we're going to look at, that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God when we were controlled by the sinful nature. Notice how he switches back and forth in these pronouns. And the key question is why? I mean, he could continue the we uh, at, at, you know, so my brothers, we died to uh, the law, no, but he uses the word you. Interesting. Uh, that we might belong to one another, but he uses the word you. So here's my point. There's something in the way he's writing this section that seems to be understood by the readers. When he uses we and you and I, I think he assumes that the readers or hearers that uh, Phoebe, the uh, deliverer of this uh, letter, as she would read this to the house churches in Rome, there's an assumption that 
each of the listeners would automatically know kind of where they are placed within this switching back and forth of the pronouns. So that's what makes this section not only difficult, but it's also a section that helps us to understand that the switching between you and we and I seems to be a way to work toward this goal of bringing two groups of people together that we have called the strong and the weak. So does that make sense to everybody? So there's no identification except by these pronouns, but I think that the listeners would be able to identify themselves within uh, this type of back and forth tennis ball approach that Paul is taking in this section. Do you have any questions or comments on that? So let's start with we, and I've just read a few different verses to show you how dominant that theme is here. Now, in chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, and chapter eight, it continues using the we, which I think is Paul and whoever the you is in this section is inclusive to the other group. So this is everyone. So in a sense, he we, it's another form of all, all the people that are listening in on this. What's, um, what's interesting here is the journey it takes. So you begin in chapter five, where he talks about how we were all sinners and Christ died for us, and we were justified and we were reconciled and we were saved and so forth. There's a journey that's being painted here from one form of life to another form of life that which is outside of Christ and that which is inside of Christ. So this we is the least restrictive uh, and most inclusive because he's including everyone in this section. So what's happening here is the theme is celebrating what every one of us has in Christ. So if we could summarize that by saying, this is our redemption, this is what we received when we put our faith in Christ, you'd be surprised as to the detail of that. Look, look at this slide here. I know it's, it's a little bit small here, but if you were to separate uh, and, and, and label every gift that is given um, to the believer in Christ, this is how Paul summarizes. You have grace, you have justification, you have peace with God, reconciliation, glory, hope, life, love. You have the Holy Spirit. You're saved. You're liberated. You belong to one another in the body of Christ. You're children of God. Uh, you've been redeemed. Christ is conforming you to his image Christ is interceding on your behalf when you find it difficult to pray. Uh, it's a secure relationship. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. And we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So take a look at 17 different things that are listed there that celebrating um, the inclusiveness of all people that Paul is writing to. So you might say this is sort of like a kaleidoscope. The gift of life that is given to us in Christ is multifaceted. It is something that is to be celebrated. It is something to be shared. And so the motive behind this is not just to celebrate the fact that we have all of these gifts from God. The motive behind it is, why are you bickering? Why can't you get along? If you have all of these things in common, if you share all of these blessings, why are you constantly at each other's throat? So at the heart of this, in many respects, is the ongoing issue of human prejudice, um, racism between Jews and Gentiles, um, the idea of 
Torah observing individuals, those that do not observe Torah. And you might say this whole section is probably what we need a good dose of in our world when we don't see things eye to eye, but yet we share all the same gifts through Christ and through faith. Why are we always at each other's throat when we have all of these things in common? Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts there? So, you know, one of the most divisive elements of faith is the multiplication of uh, all kinds of different denominations around the world, and nobody can get along, and everybody thinks they're the ones that got it all right. This is not primarily motivated so that you have your theological box all sorted out correctly. This is a motivation to say, listen, this is what you have. This is what I have. This is what we have. And let's share it. Let's celebrate it. Let's love each other. Let's serve with each other. Even if we don't see eye to eye, let's walk arm in arm. That's kind of the idea behind this section. Okay, so it's not a theological uh, section as an end in and of itself. It's a theological section for a purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. Questions? So how do you live life with all of these gifts? Um, I think what Paul is trying to say here is these gifts are meant to make a difference in the house churches. And uh, life with all of these gifts have basically switched uh, these believers' identification from being in Adam to being in Christ. And even though uh, we still struggle and battle and have shortcomings and uh, all of that type of thing, there's one dominant thing that you're going to find here, because the way this section ends in chapter 8, there's a heavy stress upon the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 8, if you were to take your pencil and you were to circle things, you would find, beginning in verse 4, it says, and uh, so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according, but according to the spirit. There you go. Verse five, those who live in accordance with the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on the spirit. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. So the Holy Spirit is a dominant theme in chapter eight and seems to be where Paul is pushing that the way to become more like Christ is to be controlled by the spirit, not by your sinful nature. That's what he says in verse nine here. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And the implication there is he does live in you. And if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But uh, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. And that's all the and you go all the way down to uh, verse 17. And you keep seeing that the emphasis is upon the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit that indwells us is to impact our spirit. That By our spirit, I mean everything that makes us who we are, our personality, our experiences, our circumstances, our struggles, all that type of thing. And the Holy Spirit is to help us to become reciprocal in our relationship with other people. So there's an element of circularity here. Um, the gift that we have is the Holy Spirit, and it enables me to offer these things to you, and, and you offer these type of things to me. So there you see the, the idea of unity again.
Any thoughts there? So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna go back to each of these sections in the we sections and, and I'm just gonna point out a couple more things and then I'm gonna point out the you sections uh, in, in chapters five through eight. So go back to chapter five in verses one through 11. You're gonna notice here um, that the way this is built is moving toward glory of God, which gives us hope. So look at verse one, since we've been justified, declared, that is being declared innocent and being declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So there's an element of you have a positional re reception of grace when you believe, but you live in it, you stand in it. And here's where it takes us. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we're hoping for. That God's glory will be, um, will be uh, experienced in the end. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be a trouble-free life. Look at verse 3. Not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering, and here's this pyramid, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So this section here is emphasizing for us that this hope of the glory of God, the hope of being made right, not just with, with God, but in, a, in ourselves as well, takes us up this ladder that often begins with struggle, that often begins with suffering, and through that, we build character and perseverance, and that then, in the end, gives us hope, because we have the character to be able to face those tough situations, because we've learned, we've grown, we've struggled, and we've stretched in the process. Does that make sense? It's not fun, though. You know, that's you know, when Paul says here, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we say, oh, yeah, great. I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But we also rejoice in our sufferings. No, Paul, I not, nah, not on board with that, right? But what he's saying is you don't have a choice. Basically, we all go through suffering and struggles. It's what it's going to do in us. Uh, is what's most important. Any thoughts there? So now here, Paul, after he talks about grace and peace and joy, he then seems to switch uh, a little bit here. In verse six, he says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So who does he have in mind here? Is he still thinking about we? Or is he thinking specifically about the Gentiles here? Um, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he, here's that we coming back. But you see in verse 6, it's almost as if he has somebody specifically in mind. You see, you see, is that all we, or is that the you that he's going to dominate the section with in a little bit? I don't, I don't know how, how to answer that. But in the end, he includes himself in with that. And he comes back to these big theological points again. Verse 9, we have been justified. Uh, by his blood, we have been saved from God's wrath. We were God's enemies. We're now reconciled. Um, we are saved through his life and so forth. 
So again, each of those subjects are a study in and of themselves. I mean, you could take the word justification and you can go on a long study of that and see where in Paul's writings, he takes you and the same thing with reconciliation, um, the same thing here that we find with um, the ideas that he is bringing up, uh, the whole idea of Adam we talked about last week, and then also the idea of slavery that he's going to talk about here in a moment when we come to chapter six. But before we do that, do you have any comments on this section, verses one through 11? Okay, so jump over to chapter six. He's still in this we mindset. But what's interesting here in the first 10 verses of chapter six, he's going to start using uh, an imagery here about slavery to, uh, to the death element uh, that we carry with us because we are human and because we are sinners. But there's a question that pops up in Paul's mind. As much emphasis as he has placed upon grace in chapter five, the question by a silent interrogator in his mind asks this question in verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So this would pop up, especially in the minds of the Jewish people. You mean you're going to disregard the law? Does that mean you have full freedom just to live your life any way that you want? And if you think that God's grace is greater than our sin, well, that doesn't that just give us an excuse to go on sinning? Because the more we sin, the more grace we receive. And you'll notice what Paul says, by no means, meganoita in Greek. I mean, it's real strong. No way, no possible way. And here's what he says. We died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. So the idea here, building upon this idea of being in Christ is um, the ability to break the power of sin and death that is so dominant in human life. And he uses baptism. Now, this might have some water in it, but it's probably more related to the spirit baptism that comes later in chapter eight that Paul has in mind here. Because he says in verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that a purpose clause, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. Now, those of you who uh, won't see this past Sunday's uh, sermon until this Sunday. Um, I talked a little bit this past Sunday about the appearances of Christ. And the post-resurrection appearances of Christ is fascinating because there's an element there <clears throat> of, reckon, uh, of him being recognized by some people and not recognized by other people. And What's interesting is there seems to be an element of continuation in his resurrection, but there seems to be some new elements as well that makes us think a little bit about the resurrection nature of the body. It's still a human body, but what has changed? And if it has changed, the question could become, you know, since he's already gone through death and has come out of death and has been resurrected, is there, um, it could, I guess, Christ be killed again? 
I mean, could he be crucified again? Could he have died again a second time? Or is there some type of immortal element to it that frees us from the slavery to death? And notice what verse four says here. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. He's thinking about the resurrection of Christ and how it safeguards him in some aspect. And because we have been buried with him in our identification with him, we have the ability to live a new kind of life uh, that the old life has passed away. Now, next week in chapter seven, <laughs> we're going to see that the continued residue of living in the human body still seems to affect even the apostle Paul. But at least at this point here, he is saying we're united with him. Verse five, if we have been united with him uh, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. There's this expectation that something is going to change about us. And then he says in verse six, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Well, this is theologically dense. However, the struggle of this section is, okay, I know that in my mind, I died with Christ. I know that in my mind that I've been raised to new life. Why do I find it so difficult to live into that new kind of life? Why is it that I'm constantly being pulled back to my old attitudes and, and that type of thing. So he's setting it up to say there is change that is possible. Uh, and, and here he is saying in verse eight, he says, now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. See, Paul's answering that question I just raised, that you can't, you, you can't kill him again because death no longer has mastery over him. And he's drawing that as an illustration. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And that's what he's calling upon his readers to do. Imagine that you have died to sin the same way Christ died and through his resurrection has been given new life. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is talking about a subject that has often been called in theological circles, sanctification. That is, how do you get this new life of Christ to live in you on a consistent basis? Um, is it more rules? Um, is it legalism? What is it? Well, the way he ends this down in verse 14 of chapter six is, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So there seems to be some element here that the only way we truly change is by our identification with who we were and who we are becoming and always live under grace, live under grace. Constantly remind yourself that God is patient with us and um, that we are in the process of being changed. Um, again, theologically very dense section. But um, now what he's going to do, so we're continuous, continuing this we uh, section, go over to chapter seven. For good measure, uh, <laughs> Paul uses an illustration. So he throws in this illustration about marriage. And you don't realize that he's still in the we section until you get down to verse four. So my brothers, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. There's the resurrection again, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by sinful nature, the sinful passions arise by the law, we're at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. 
But now by dying, okay, what we were once bound to, we have been released from the law so that we serve in, a, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the old way, the idea of the law, the idea of legalism, the idea of keeping a bunch of rules is illustrated in verses one through three with this uh, marriage analogy. Look, it says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as a man lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So what he's talking about here is in the covenant of marriage, uh, two individuals are married, but if one dies, they are now free from that covenant uh, commitment and can get remarried. So here's the idea. You have two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, the idea of the Mosaic covenant is filled with the Mosaic law, but you died to that, he says. You're dead to that. Now you're freed, just like a woman could remarry someone uh, when her husband has died. So you too have died to the law so that you can live a new kind of life in Christ. Does that make sense? Easier said than done, right? Okay. I mean, it's in many, many ways, this section is very, very theoretical. Okay, um, I think this is why sometimes Paul is is that typical academic rabbi that becomes very philosophical, and and you might say he okay Paul, can you just kind of bring the cookies down to the lower shelf so that we can reach them um, because it's it, it's it's difficult. But my point is, in this section, he includes himself in this by using the we term, and he's including both the weak and the strong. Thoughts? Larry? Yeah, go. I, I think if you go back to 6, Romans 6, mm -hmm. verse 13, I don't know if Paul is giving us a hint here on how to do this, but he says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, mm -hmm. but rather mm -hmm. offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's trying to show us how to live out of sin. If you, think of doing something and it's going to end up being wicked, then you could think of that as sin. But if you're, say, stealing bread to feed your family, you wouldn't think of that as sin. So what I, what I hear you saying is the fruit of what I the end of or result will help determine whether or not to assess whether this is something that is wicked or sinful. Uh, is that kind of where you're coming from? Yeah. You're yeah. kind of projecting toward the end. And what are the results of my actions here? Is this going to be good or bad um, in in the end? Is Am I hearing yeah. you right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how much, how, uh, how, how better can we make decisions if we were all to think farther down the line of what results would come about from our actions? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, it, it would govern the choices that we make here. If we knew it's, it's going to end up at a particular place that is not favorable uh, in the end. What do you guys think? Anybody else? 
I'm I'm looking at this. I'm grateful for this um, passages because we're not getting away from sin no matter what. So, um, you know, it's like you make the choice to, um, you know, not act as a slave to sin, but know that you can live in grace. It's it's a good message, I think. Yeah. I think none of us live up to our own ideals. No, I, and, you know, and, and to to not live guilty frees you up from yeah. um, going down the <laughs> down the drain. You know, so right. It's it's like all those examples we have in the Bible of people who um, went down the drain essentially and sinned big time. You know, and even you know, but but that didn't stop them from fulfilling their destiny, you know, with God. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, even Paul says to the Corinthians, all of these things happened as an example for you. And he was referring to a lot of the stories that come out of the nation of Israel that they kind of serve as examples for each of us. And I think that's the big value in many of the things that we find in the scriptures is they help us develop wisdom and avoid foolishness to use the two themes that are dominant in the book of Proverbs, which is probably the most practical book in the Bible is the book of Proverbs because, you know, it's designed for us to develop wisdom and make good choices like Shelley was talking about, make wise choices, which in the end prevents you from doing wicked or harmful things to other people. And he's like, what, what good was that? Was that really great when you were sinning, <laughs> sinning it up? Was that, what benefit was that? Yeah. To right. you or anyone else, you know? So, um, yeah. and it's changing attitude too. Like, are you living for yourself or, um, mm-hmm. you know, are you living for others? So, yeah, there's bigger, there's bigger a bigger vision here than just me. It's also, how does it affect us? And that ties it back into what I think he's doing in the whole book of Romans. Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how are you affecting, uh, you know, uh, what are you doing effect, uh, that affects the other group that you're, you don't see eye to eye with? So, yeah. So are you living like, he's saying that is death right there how you what benefit is that how you're living like that and that's literally death (laughs) but now if you're free from it then you you're um sanctified Mm -hmm. you know so i think that it's it's real freedom though yeah yeah and it and the key is to live within that freedom right to stay consistent I grew up and I grew up Catholic, so I never knew if I was actually going to heaven. I never knew just how good I had to be and that but here I'm making all these mistakes. I'm never getting in. So just forget it. You know, so like sort thinking of, about it's sort of know. like you were chasing something that they kept moving the, the goalposts <laughs> farther away. Every time. Yeah, so it's so freeing to know that you are you know, you are going to be, have eternal life. You don't yeah. have to worry about that. And it doesn't have to prevent you from, you know, swirling down the toilet <laughs> to right. guilt. And, and that's, pretty, a, that is a gift. That's a gift yeah. of freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Okay. So that theme of we continues in chapter eight. Um, He talks a little bit about um, the whole idea of where this is going. So if you come down to verse 18 of chapter eight, he talks about suffering again, interestingly enough. He says, I consider that our present suffering, so he's including himself, this idea of us 
um, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and I'll say daughters of God uh, to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, here's where he starts using we again in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. So again, he picks up that repeated pronoun of we in this section, but he connects it to something very important here. And notice here how many times, beginning in verse 26, all the way to the end of chapter 8, that he talks about the spirit. He's already talked about that up in, in the first part of the chapter, but he even talks about it here as well. The spirit helps us in our weaknesses, verse 26. The spirit himself intercedes for us, it says. And then he, uh, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints. So, the gift of the spirit kind of stands in the gap between what we are in the present and what we hope for in the future. And it's to give us confidence that God is going to achieve what he wants to achieve in us. And it's a lifetime project. But what we find is that groaning, and he uses creation here as an illustration. It's almost as if as when you're walking uh, through, you know, the park and you're looking at creation, it's kind of like that, that too has been affected by the way we live our lives as human beings. Sometimes literally when you cut down the rainforest, sometimes figuratively by the way we disregard the beauty of, of the nature and the creation around us. But um so he um, personifies uh, this idea of creation kind of standing on tiptoe, waiting for all of us to catch up to what God wants to do in us, because it's going to be good for everyone and, and the entire creation as well. And as we reflect upon that, it's the Holy Spirit's job to keep moving us forward. And I think that's kind of what compels us here is that the Holy Spirit is, is the engine and the fuel source that enables us to keep moving closer and closer toward um, the redemption of all of creation and the liberation from what oppresses the created order in which we live. So. Um, that kind of leads us to this idea of the future in Christ. The future, um, for those of us who participate in Christ, is not something that awaits us when we get to heaven. The idea is it begins now, and it's working in us now. And I think his point here is it should be working within the lives of those that are not able to get along in the Roman house churches. And if all of creation is going to be liberated and all of creation cooperates with what God wants to do, shouldn't you? And that's the other thing that, and we're, I don't know if I want to start the you section tonight because I don't think we'll have time to do it justice. But we are joint heirs in Christ and we should live 
in alignment with that. And if we do, we will become more than conquerors. That's what he says here in verse 28 uh, of chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who has been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, this verse, verse 29, has often been used to talk about um, election in the sense that God chooses who he wants to be saved. I don't, I don't think that's the point here. Keep in mind the big picture. God used and called the Jews, but now through his spirit, he's joining Jew and Gentile together. So for the, those who God foreknew, he, be, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Well, what is that foreknowledge? That in due time, Christ would die for the ungodly, which included Jews and Gentiles, and they together will be a part of this process of being called to be the people of God. And as they are called to be the people of God, there is justification that what God did in allowing his son to die on our behalf will lead to the glorification, not just of one group of people, but all groups of people. And that's what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, who is it that God has chosen? He's chosen all people to be a part of his plan. It is God who justifies. Who is he who, that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, raised to life is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. So that's this Sunday's message. We're going to talk about the ascension of Christ uh, to the right hand of God. What does that mean? And then, of course, there's that famous section that finishes off the chapter. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we are joint heirs with Christ. And, and as a part of that, where God is taking creation, he's taking us along with him. And we will play a part in that. And the imagery he uses is justification to glorification. The predestination here is God had in mind this whole process that he would bring two different kinds of people together to be a part of his, his church, um, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, uh, you know, boys, girls, gay, straight, um, black, white, whatever distinctions that we make a lot of times in our lives belong to uh, God's work in the world, and he's moving toward that end. Does that make sense? Now, he will have, and I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll do this next week. He will have some strong words, and the way he uses this is with a different pronoun, you. That will become dominant. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that next week. So we have a minute or two. Um, you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, insights that you want to share? It's a very dense, densely written section of scripture. Yes. Again, Paul was an academic. He was, he was schooled by Gamaliel, probably the leading rabbi of the day. And it, it, it's reflected, especially in this letter. That's for sure. Yeah. There, yeah. Kind of switching back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. So what uh, Mark was saying is that he, he had never noticed before in this section how this switches back and forth between the different pronouns that are being used. But that's easy to overlook, you know, when you're just reading. But there seems to be some intention behind it. I think that's that's the big point I'm trying to make. So, so what we're going to do next week, we'll take a look at you. And then we will also talk about I. Because in Chapter 7, he puts the spotlight right on himself. And he just talks about his own personal battle uh, in this whole process. But... Any uh, other closing thoughts or comments? I just was thinking about, um, you know, that all things work together for good, but it's it's for those who love him. So, mm -hmm. and and I I just have recently been able to do that. I kind of always looked like he wasn't a father figure in my life but it's it's changed for me recently oh good you know yeah well i hope yeah. that's bringing you much comfort and joy and security yeah and it, and it helps when i look at my own kids and know that the love i have for them yeah. is like he has for me and i never really accept that so it was just it just struck me um reading that passage beautiful that's great mm -hmm. that's good Anybody else? Well, if not, um, we'll pick up with this, these last two pronouns next Wednesday night. And uh, then we're, we'll, we'll see where we wanna go on Wednesdays uh, from there. But um, thanks for bearing with me. Again, this is not an easy section. It's full of promise and, you know, there's all kinds of individual things really here to celebrate, but it's also a very dense passage of scripture that takes a lot of chewing on a little bit. So hope you hope you can do that. And uh, we'll see you next time then. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Welcome. All right. You take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.